0: It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. My name is Dan, one of the pastors here on staff, and let me also add my Mother's Day greeting to all of the moms out there. Hope that your day is full of brunch and flowers and chocolate and NASCAR or whatever it is that makes you feel appreciated uh, today. Well, I want to begin this morning as you do on Mother's Day by thinking back to the 1919 World Series. I'm sure you were all here with me already. 1919 World Series will be a World Series that was remembered forever. The Cincinnati Reds were playing the Chicago White Sox, and the White Sox were favored to win going into the series. But the Cincinnati Reds were able to pull off an upset. Now, now what makes this World Series so memorable is not the fact that the underdogs won. It's the fact that after the series was over, Eight players on the White Sox were accused of fixing the series, of intentionally losing the World Series in exchange for money. Shoeless Joe Jackson was the star of the White Sox that year, one of the best players in baseball, and he, along with the seven other players on his team that contributed to this, were kicked out of Major League Baseball and refused entrance into the Baseball Hall of Fame forever. And to this day, Shoeless Joe Jackson is one of the best baseball players of all time to not be in the Hall of Fame. All because of one fatal mistake. One lapse in judgment. You see, sometimes it only takes one fatal mistake to keep us from receiving something amazing. Sometimes it it only takes that, that one lapse in judgment that derails our life from the direction that we were headed. We're going through the book of Exodus together. And last week we looked at Exodus 32. Exodus 32 is this well-known story of the golden calf. Moses had been up on the mountain meeting with God for 40 days and 40 nights. He'd been given the 10 commandments. He'd been given the law. He comes down with these tablets. And when he gets to the bottom, he sees the people worshiping this image of a young cow. Now, we had seen through these chapters in the book of Exodus that as God was formalizing his relationship with his people, he was using language reminiscent of a marriage covenant, right? This was God proposing to his people, inviting them into a covenant of marriage with him. And now they have been unfaithful before the honeymoon was even over. And at the end of chapter 32, we're left with this unanswered question. Have the people of Israel committed that one fatal mistake? Have they gone a step too far? Is there any recovering for them? Another way that we could ask this question is to say, have the failures of the people negated the promises of God? Have the failures of the people negated the promises of God? And this might be a question that we ask in our own lives sometimes as well. Do our failures, do our shortcomings, do our sinful actions put in jeopardy the promises that God has made to us? I remember being a college student and in college I was struggling with an addiction to pornography. And it was something that that I wanted to be free of, that I wanted to break out of. And yet I found myself keep, keep falling back into the same habits and patterns. And there were times as I was on that journey where I began to question genuinely, do my failures mean that God is no longer gonna be faithful to me? Uh, the ways that I've been unfaithful to him, will that be returned by God with unfaithfulness as well? Have I gone A step too far. And maybe you've asked that question as well. Maybe you've found yourself either through some large mistake that was made or through a series of smaller mistakes made over time, wondering if your failings, if your shortcomings, of your sins, might keep God from fulfilling His promises to you. It's a question that arises naturally out of our lives. It's a question that arises in this section of the book of Exodus. And so we're going to ask that question this morning as we look at Exodus chapter 33. So let's turn to Exodus 33 and uh, begin with the first three verses. Here's what we find. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. To the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So here, it would seem we're, we're feeling pretty good about this. That God is actually reminding them of the promises that he's made. He's reaffirming some of those promises that he's already made to the people. He says, I'm going to send you up and I'm going to send you into the land. I'm going to send an angel with you to bring you there. I'm I'm going to drive out your enemies from the land and give it to you. So it seems that God is still planning to follow through on his promises in spite of their unfaithfulness. And yet there's hints, even in these verses, of some distance that's developed between God and his people. As God addresses the people or talks about the people, he calls them not my people, as he does sometimes elsewhere, but the people, a little bit less personal. He doesn't identify them as the people that he, God, has brought out of Egypt, though he does elsewhere. Here he refers to them as the people whom Moses has brought out of Egypt. We get hints that there's some distance that's developed between God and his people, but then we get to the second half of verse three and it becomes clear. We read this. God says, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. Wow. God says, I'm still gonna send you up. I'm still gonna send you into the land I'm still going to drive out your enemies, but I'm not going to go with you. I will not be among you as you go. Now, now this should be striking to us because the whole book of Exodus has been a story about God making it possible for him to be with his people and for them to be with him. And that's why he brings them out of their captivity in Egypt into a new land. Will they be able to worship him? And God demonstrates his presence with them through his mighty acts, through the 10 plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, through the destruction of the Egyptian army. And God has symbolized his presence with the people through the, cloud of, uh, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire moving through the wilderness, through that cloud that sat on the top of the mountain as Moses and the elders went up. And now most recently, through the instructions of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be this tent, this place in the midst of the people where God would dwell and they could come to meet with him and he with them. So the whole book of Exodus has been moving us into this, into this direction where God will really be able to be present with his people and he with them. And then God says, because of your sin, I'm still going to send you into the land, but I'm not going to go with you. And what we have here from God is an offer. It's an offer to the people to experience the blessing of God apart from the presence of God. It's a blessing to, to still enjoy Much of what the Lord has promised, much of the ways that he said that he would bless them, a land that would be their own, a a land flowing with milk and honey where they could find peace and they could have victory over their enemies. So so, so many of the promises of God were still available to them, but God said, I am going to withhold my presence. This offer, this quest for the the, the blessings of God, apart from... the presence of God is something that so many people in our culture are after. I think it's the thing that characterizes so many people in our culture. And that for many of us, we may also find ourselves at times seeking after the blessing of God without the presence of God. I want to think about our culture for a moment. Our culture is what many people call a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture is a culture that was founded on Christian values and beliefs and yet has now reacting against God and Christianity. It's a culture in which Christianity used to be viewed as a social good and it's now viewed as a social evil. And it's met with increasing levels of hostility. More and more that those things are characteristic of our culture. But another way to think about a post-Christian culture in a way that I think gets right at what we see in Exodus 33 here is in in the words of Mark Sayers, who's a pastor in Australia, he says that that a post-Christian culture is really seeking after the kingdom of God without the king. That is, so many of the blessings that we're told are ours in the kingdom, things like love, joy, peace, right? Things like... uh, prosperity, things like peace uh, and um, justice, wholeness, well-being, these things that are promised in the kingdom of God, our culture wants those things. It's after those things, but it's rejecting God as the king. We live in a culture that is motivated by this quest for the kingdom of God without the king, the blessing of God without the presence of God. But many of us do this as well. Many of us find ourselves longing for the promised land, right? The land flowing with milk and honey and vacations and stock options and all of these good things in life. We want the blessings of God, but we don't always want the presence of God, right? We don't always want to bow down in obedience to a king. We would rather just have life on our own terms to do things our own way. This desire for the blessing of God apart from the the presence of God is something so common to each and every one of us. What do you think about that offer? If God was offering that to you, how, how would that sound? How would you receive that? As the people of Israel hear this offer, they recognize that this is not an offer at all, that that this is a threat, that that this would be a punishment. And we read that as we continue. Verses four through six. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. See, the people of Israel understood that the blessing of God without the presence of God was no blessing at all. They understood that these good things in life that they could have were really nothing if they didn't have God himself. We can give the Israelites a hard time for a lot of things, right? They mess up in a lot of ways, but here they get it right. They recognize that this is a disastrous word and they mourn because of it. Well, let's think about what God is doing here, what God is saying. Well, let's think about it in terms of, of this question that we're asking. Do our failures negate the promises of God? At first, it, it didn't look like it. We were feeling pretty good. But now God says, I'm actually going to withhold my most important promise of all, which is my presence with you. And, and the reason he says is because if, if I go with you, I will consume you. I will, I will destroy you. Now, what's going on there with God? These are somewhat uncomfortable words for us to read. Are are we supposed to think of God as uh, just being so full of anger that he's worried that if he's even with his people, he's just going to lose his temper, right? Like he's going to do something that he regrets. Okay, I've been there before. Maybe you've been there before. Uh, I'm in a situation, perhaps my children were involved, perhaps not, uh, and I feel myself becoming angry and and I know that if I stay here in this moment, I might do something I'm going to regret. And, and so I back up a little bit, right, take a little bit of space, move into the other room maybe, and then I'm ready to come back and I'm ready to have that conversation. Right? Is that what God is doing here? Like, I just, I just need a moment. I just need a moment to calm down so I don't do something that I'm going to regret. No, that, that is not what God is doing. Sometimes he's described in, in these human terms to help us understand what he's like. But but God is not about to lose his temper or do something that he's going to regret. Instead, what we have is a holy God reacting with a righteous anger to the sin of his people. Right? He says, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And if that's the direction that you want to go, then you can go that way, but I'm not going with you. He offers them as a, a more of a threat than anything. The, the blessing, the blessing that he can give without his actual presence. The people don't want this, and, and Moses doesn't want this either. What we see here, as the chapter goes on, is that this is not the end of God's relationship with his people. Right? There's still some hope God doesn't totally disappear at this point. And yet, we can see that there's a considerable amount of distance that develops between God and his people. We see this as we continue reading. Look at verse seven. These words here are both beautiful in one way and tragic and terrifying in another way. Now, Moses used to to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the, to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. What we see here is this tent that Moses takes. Right? The tent was supposed to be the tabernacle. God had just given instructions to build a tabernacle, which was a tent where the people could meet with God. This tent is not that tent. This tent is not the tabernacle. And we know that because it's pitched outside the tent, far outside the tent, it says. This was not a place where the people could meet with God. This was a place where Moses would remove himself from the people so that he could meet with God. And the people would stand outside their tents, looking from afar, yes, and worshiping, but with no access to God. Right, the people's access to God had been removed. The other major thing that's missing here in this tent compared to the tabernacle is that there's no altar. That there's no place where sacrifices can be made. There's no way to achieve atonement, forgiveness of sins. And so now we're left answering, asking the question as we see this tent of meeting, has God created a place to meet with Moses, but has he excluded any possibility of, him, of his people having access to him? Has he removed any means through which they might find forgiveness and atonement for their sins? And the thought of that was terrifying for the people and the thought of that ought to be terrifying for us. Is this how God will treat us when we fail as well? And yet, and yet we look at this relationship that Moses has with God. It says Moses would go into that tent and he would talk with God face to face, like a man talks to his friend. And we're not meant to understand that literally exactly. God is not a physical being. He doesn't have a physical face. And yet it's clear that the idea of face to face is the idea of connection, intimacy. Like you sit down with a friend for a cup of coffee. God and Moses had this intimate kind of relationship. And when I hear that, there's something in my soul that says, I want that. I I want that kind of access to God. I want that kind of relationship with God where, where he might share his life with me and I can share my life with him. There's something beautiful in that. I wonder if there's something in you also, as we hear this story, as we think about this encounter between God and Moses that says, I want that. I want to know God in that way. I want to have that kind of access to God, that kind of relationship with God. You know, we we need to just stop and notice that. We need to stop and and just pay attention to that place in our soul. It's good to be aware of the parts of us that that sometimes move away from the presence of God That say, God, I'll take your blessing, but not your presence. But we also need to pay attention to those parts in our soul where we say, God, I do want you. God, God, I do want to know you. God, I do love you. And, and we all have both of these things in tension inside of us. The, the, these times where we move away from, these God, the, from God and these times where we're drawn closer to God. And we need to pay attention to both. And we need to talk with God honestly about both. In those times where, where we say, God, I, I just, I don't really want you like Moses did. Or in those times where we say, God, my heart cries for that kind of relationship with you. Could we bring both of those things to God in honesty? Because relationship, intimacy is built on honesty. You can't have a close relationship with somebody if you're not honest, if you're not truthful, if you're not forthcoming. So could we bring our whole selves to God, right? Those parts of us that desire him and those parts of us that honestly don't. We see both in this chapter. Moses ha- has experienced this, this intimacy with the Lord. He knows that he's on the inside, but he also recognizes his role as mediator as go-between, and, and he's not content to just stay in that tent of meeting on his own outside the camp and say, this is good enough for me. No, he, he wants God to bring the people along. He wants the people to be able to experience the presence of God as well. And so he prays for this. He intercedes on behalf of the people. Verses 12 and 13, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have told me, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Moses says, God, I know that I've found favor in your sight. And God, I love that I have found favor in your sight. But remember, you didn't just make those promises to me. You didn't just promise to make me your person. You promised to make us your people. God, would you remember those promises, those promises that you've made to the people? God responds in verse 14. And he, that is God, said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses has said, God, will you, will you do this for the people? And, and God looks at Moses and says, Moses, I will do this for you. I will be with you. I will give you rest. And so Moses comes again to the Lord, verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says, God, take us all, right? We, we all want to be with you. On, on behalf of the people, I ask, would you come and would you go with us, your people? These are promises that you have made to us. Will you hold true to your promises to us, your people? Moses understood something important here. He brings up this idea of being distinct. That is, what makes us unique? What makes us separate? What makes us distinct from everybody else in the world? And we might think that what makes them distinct is that God is going to give them the land like he's promised to do. God's gonna give them victory over their enemies. God's gonna put them in the land flowing with milk and honey where they have everything they need. That's what's gonna make them distinct. And Moses says, that is not what makes us distinct. What makes us distinct is that we have you with us. Right? That, that's who we are. What makes us the people of God is not that we experience the blessing of God, it's that we have the presence of God. I had a friend in college who uh, was a great man of God, loved the Lord. But after college, he began down this road of, of questioning a lot of the things that he had always believed, kind of deconstructing his faith, right? really looking at, at if he did believe kind of what he grew up to believe. And, and one significant step on this journey was a retreat that he was on. It was was a a spiritual retreat. He went to this retreat center on his own. um, And at this retreat center, he got to know a couple of Buddhist monks who were also there on a retreat. And as he talked with these monks, he was hearing in them, in their lives, so many of the things that he was seeking after in his own life through his relationship with God. He, He was hearing stories of people who experienced true and genuine peace. He was seeing lives of people who were truly full of love. He he was hearing about how their lives had been transformed from the inside out as they walked in devotion to their religion. And he began to ask, not exactly in this language, but this is what he was doing. If you can have the blessing of the kingdom without the king, then do we really need the king, right? If these are are the, if I can still get the blessings, if there's other ways to get these good things, then, then maybe Christianity is not so unique. Maybe Christianity is not so special. But what my friend failed to see and what so many people failed to see is that what makes us unique as a people, as the people of God, it's not the blessings of God right? It's not even those internal things like love, joy, and peace, like like deep contentment, like an inner life that's been transformed. Even those things are not what make us unique as a people. And it's not our ethics. It's not our morality, the way that we choose to live our lives. That is not what makes us unique as a people. There are plenty of good, moral, ethical people out there. And, you know, it's not even what we believe. It's not having the right doctrine. It's not assenting to the right beliefs that make us unique as a people. What makes us unique, what makes us the people of God is that we have the presence of God with us, that God himself dwells with us. That is what makes us unique. That is who we are. And so we need to guard against that part of us that would try to to seek after the blessings of God without the presence of God, because without the presence of God, we are not the people of God. We are not who we are. Moses, uh, on behalf of the people, wants them to experience the presence of God because it's the presence of God that gives them identity as a people. They are who they are because of who they are in relation to God. And so Moses pleads with the Lord, please go with us, your people. God responds in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to do what you've asked. I'm going to go with you and not just you, but I'm going to go with the people. I'm not going to send you without me. I'm not going to give you these blessings without my presence. I will go with you. I will be with you. I will be my God. I will be your God and you will be my people. We see in this definitively that the failure of the people, even something so dramatic as that golden calf experience The failure of the people does not negate the promise of God. And that same thing is absolutely true for us. That our failures, our sin, our shortcoming does not negate the promise of God to us. The promise to be with us. The promise to forgive. The promise to save. That even when we fall short, and especially when we fall short, God is with us. Present, And we know this is true because we can look to what Jesus did for us on the cross, that Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice, that he gave up his life for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be given the righteousness of Christ and have, can have confidence that there's no failing on our part that will undo what Jesus has already done for us. But we can also know that that God will never leave us because he has given his spirit to us to live inside of us. The presence of God indwelling those of us who follow Jesus, right? And it's not just in a cloud. It's not just up on a mountain. It's not just in the tabernacle. He lives inside of us, ministering to us, praying for us, a seal of our ultimate salvation. So we can have confidence that our our failures do not negate the promises of God because we can look to Jesus at what he's done on the cross and we can listen to the inner testimony of the spirit of God who lives in us. Moses knew that to be true, right? Moses wanted to, to experience this life in God's presence and God had said, I will go with you. But, but for Moses, that was, that was like just a taste. It just wet his appetite. He said, there's, I think there's something more. There's something more that I want. And so we read this starting in verse 18. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place where you shall go stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover over you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses says, God, I've experienced some of you, the people have experienced some of you, but I want to experience more. I I want to experience your glory, right? All of who you are, not just part, all of it. And God says, you know, you can have most of it. (laughs) I'm gonna give you this experience beyond any experience that Moses had ever had of the presence and glory of God, but he says, you, you, you can't have all of it. You can't come all the way because it would just be too much. It would just, it would undo you. It would be the end of you, Moses. But I wanna give you a taste, right? I wanna give you a glimpse of my glory. God tells Moses, I, I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy and I have chosen to be gracious to you. And in the next chapter, chapter 34, we see this interaction that happens between God and Moses as God passes by and reveals himself more fully to Moses. But what I want to highlight for us in these verses this time is that what God is doing in part here is he's going back to that burning bush experience that Moses had with God back in Exodus chapter 23, where God revealed himself to Moses in a dramatic way. Here we have another dramatic encounter with God and Moses, but it's so much deeper, it's so much closer. And it was in that first call, in that burning bush experience where God called Moses. And he said, I want you to be the one to lead my people out of their captivity in Egypt. And here again, as we have echoes of chapter three in our minds, we hear God calling Moses again, saying, let's, let's have a fresh start. You and me and the people, let, let's give this another try. And he gives them a second chance. Our God is the God of second chances. Uh, Our God is the God of fresh starts, that he looks at our failures, he's aware of them, he sees them, and he says, why don't you come back to me and let's have a fresh start. Let's do this again. Here is my grace for you in this moment so that we can keep going. And this morning, we're gonna come to the communion table together. We're gonna come and receive from God this gift of grace that he's given us a reminder of the body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Jesus, which was shed for us. And this morning, I think there's some of us here who need a second chance. We need a fresh start with the Lord. And there's probably some of us here who need a third chance and a fourth chance or a fifth chance. And God says, come, come, let's have a fresh start. We have the the communion elements here representing the body of Christ broken for us on that cross. The blood of Christ poured out for our sins on that cross. As we come and take the elements this morning, let's come and receive the grace of the Lord for a fresh start with him, for another chance. As we come forward this morning, uh, we are gonna come up front and take elements from these tables. If you're sitting in one of these center sections, you can come up, grab a cracker and dip it in the cup, or you can take one of the self-serve packets on the side. If you're in one of the wings, uh, when I'm done praying, you can come forward whenever you're ready and take the elements. I'd like to ask you to stand as we offer ourselves to the Lord and prepare to receive communion. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us by your spirit, that you are present among us and that you are present within us. And we thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on that cross, you giving it all for us so that we could find forgiveness and life in you. And I pray, Lord, this morning that as we come and as we take this ancient practice that you gave to your first disciples, as we participate in this ritual, that we would come and we would receive grace anew. That we would receive a fresh start, a second chance, a 10th chance, a 100th chance, Lord. That we could have a fresh start in your grace and by your power through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.